Is it right to just think about poor health and disease as evidence-based medicine, where we're just looking at how the disease is caused? Well, maybe we should adopt another framework, another lens of how we are looking at. And that's why I think there is an increase in research on determinants of health that go beyond the personal characteristics. They acknowledge, for example, the level of education, the, the wealth of the person has, uh, the living conditions, the environment, and all these aspects to uh, show how their experience might affect health. This episode focuses on an interdisciplinary approach towards health, mortality, and the socioeconomic implications and determinants of inequality. In conversation with Diana Spasanowska, we explore this topic through a new, fresh lens. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I am your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode focuses on health, mortality, and the socioeconomic implications of it. This is a very interdisciplinary approach that we have not had the opportunity to address yet. It is also worth noting that, given we are going through a pandemic, it is more important than ever to work towards a more comprehensive approach and understanding of health and mortality in research and policy alike, but ultimately we must also understand how these affect the way we live. And for this episode, I am grateful to present Diana Spasenowska, a PhD researcher and a friend. Uh, welcome, Diana. I'm glad we're doing this topic together today. Thank you so much, Petros. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm very delighted to join you on this podcast and to discuss this very important topic, especially, as you said, in these times of the pandemic. Absolutely. And uh, as, as I've mentioned, Diana is a researcher with an interesting portfolio. Uh, she is currently uh, pursuing a PhD in Demography and Population Studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her research focuses on the impact of socioeconomic and political changes on health and mortality, particularly uh, changes that happen as a result of the transition from communism to democracy in the Western Balkan countries. She's interested in understanding health and determinants to poor health, and her previous degrees gave her the tools to understand it from different perspectives. While her undergraduate degree in biochemistry from Imperial College London has given her a perspective in understanding diseases at the molecular level, during her postgraduate degree in global population health from the LSE, she explored how poor health is attributable to long-term accumulation of harmful experiences and can be affected by other macro-level conditions and events. In addition, Diana also has experience in working with international organizations such as the World Health Organization and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, on projects focusing on generating evidence using evidence-based decision-making in low- and middle-income countries to promote coverage and equity of immunization. She has worked closely with numerous countries where she supported the implementation of a methodology she has developed. Yeah, so as I've said, uh, quite an interesting portfolio. Uh, you've even uh, implemented your own very specific methodology in these countries that you've uh, worked with. But I want to ask you first, I want to take a step back first and ask you 
for a bit of an overview, how come you chose to focus on this specific research field? Yes, thank you. So I've always been interested in understanding health and therefore the lack of good health and as well as premature mortality. And I always, my interest has been in understanding how can we reduce premature mortality? And at the very beginning, I thought that maybe if I study biochemistry and if I understand the molecular level uh, of diseases, then maybe I can, I can contribute towards the development of treatments or therapeutics for um, reducing uh, this premature mortality and improving health overall. But then as I was studying, I realized that no individual is isolated and that there are many other determinants of health beyond the genetic makeup of an individual and the person's characteristics that affect them. So for example, I'm talking about physical and socioeconomic environment where they are born, where they grow, where they live and age. And many of these are directly or indirectly affected by the policies made in that country and therefore the system in the country. So I have been exploring this idea throughout my master's and I, and I came to realize that this is a very important aspect that I would like to investigate further. So that's how I came up with my uh, research topic for my PhD. My research topic, as you mentioned, focuses on understanding how political and socioeconomic changes affect the health of the population, but therefore the health of the individual as well. And I decided to study this in, a re in the region of the Balkans, because many of the Balkan countries went under... Uh, through a transition, basically from communism to democracy. And I have chosen the countries from uh, ex-Yugoslavia and Albania to study this because I see them and in the literature, they're often seen as uh, some kind of laboratories for the social sciences. And this is because in communism, for example, in Yugoslavia, we had several countries that had the same system and they started at the same point. So they were following the same paths. But then after they, they became independent, each country took their own path. And now we're observing that each of them are performing very differently. But then the context of each of the country is quite similar. So uh, it is easy to, to study, for example, that many of the things might not just be attributable to the characteristics of the people because the people living in these countries are very similar to each other. And so that is a very brief overview of how I have chosen the topic and how I have shifted my understanding of health rather than health just being at the molecular level to seeing health more as a social phenomenon, as something that can be influenced through policy. Great. Let's uh, try and break this down a bit and uh, start building on on some of the key points that you've mentioned. First and foremost, uh, we are pretty much all aware that uh, infectious disease outbreaks are caused by pathogens, but some, just you know, including yourself, would argue that such outbreaks must sometimes be a biological manifestation of social inequality. So this touches upon you know the, the very core analysis of uh, what you're exploring in your thesis. What are your thoughts on these? Yes, so um, that that question is quite right in the way that I'm I'm perceiving this topic. So infectious, but also non-infectious diseases. We would think that if if we are trying to see how they're caused, whether infectious caused by pathogens or non-infectious diseases uh, arising through accumulation of different experiences. Uh, we would expect simply that they will be randomly distributed across a population. 
and that if they're simply a manifestation of the biological side, then we will not be seeing any patterns. However, when we are analyzing data that exists on how the diseases are spread, we see clustering. Let the clustering be either geographical, or maybe it is clustering by socioeconomic groups, clustering based on ethnicity, based on race. And then that clustering as well shows a gradient. So, for example, if we're talking about socioeconomic gradient and how that is distributed, we can see that the lower ends, the people at the lower end of the socioeconomic gradient experience more death than those at the higher ends. So once we start seeing these patterns, then the question arises, is it right to just think about poor health and disease as evidence-based medicine, where we're just looking at how the disease is caused. Well, maybe we should adopt another framework, in another lens of how we are looking at it. And that's why I think there is an increase in research on determinants of health that go beyond the personal characteristics. They acknowledge, for example, the level of education, the, the wealth uh, the person has, uh, the living conditions, the environment, and all these aspects to uh, show how their experience might affect health. And you also mentioned another word that is quite interesting is social inequality. If there is social inequality, if we're talking, um, we can think of inequalities that exist and we can't do anything about them. And then we can look at inequities, which means unequal distribution of resources and, um, and something that we can do something about them because they're morally wrong. But then when it comes to health, it's not that easy to determine what is an inequality that we cannot do anything about it. And then what is an inequity? So for example, I'll give you an example is when we're judging a person's health for something to be considered in an inequity and something that we can do something about it or something that uh, it is morally wrong and that we should address, then we need to argue that the individual is constrained by unfair circumstances and that they're not fully free to, to make their own choices. And therefore it is difficult to understand what is an inequality and what is an inequities. Uh, for example, if we're talking about these groupings, as I mentioned, and all these clusterings of uh, a person cannot choose where they are born, they cannot choose their geographic location, a person cannot choose their ethnicity, a person cannot choose their race, a person, uh, for example, might be constrained by the system that they're growing in um, and moving up the, the ladder of socioeconomic status. So all these things might, might be unfair and therefore they, they might be seen as health inequities. And if they're seen as health inequities, then we should do something about that. Um, and so this is really just in line uh, of the thought of how we need to consider more the side of the structural determinants that affect health and why they should be of a moral concern and why we should address them. It's quite challenging as well, isn't it? I mean, first and foremost, you have to sit down and begin identifying what these inequalities are, and then you go back to the origin. And absolutely, your project sounds quite interesting. And you've mentioned as well at the very beginning that you're particularly focused on countries that have experienced these socioeconomic and political changes on uh, health and mortality during and after the post-communist transition to democracy in the Balkans. You've also mentioned something quite uh, thought-provoking, that this uh, region, the Balkans, has often posed as a, like a laboratory of a testing 
uh, of, of these. And we are also dealing as well, on the other hand, with a region that has experienced conflict and war in its recent history. Do you think it's possible to map out the inequalities and the implications of these changes on health and mortality? And if so, how do you think it's best done? And is there... I mean, is there a specific country in the region that has suffered more than others, according to your research? Thank you. This is a really interesting question because it really uh, summarizes the question I'm trying to answer throughout my PhD. So I think I'll take a stepwise approach in answering this question. I think the very first thing that we're seeing in these countries is that there is a lack of uh, available data online. And so when I started researching, I realized that many of the trends in mortality in these countries and life expectancy and health are not, uh, are not explored enough. And that is because the data is not available online. And um, a large portion of the data that is used is generated through estimates that are produced by international organizations. They're, they're good in a sense that they give some sort of overview of what is happening in the region, but they're not accurate. So depending on what uh, source of information you use, you will find different findings. And for some countries and for some measurements, they, they're quite different. And so basically the uh, conclusions that are drawn might not be as accurate just because the estimates that are used to calculate them are very uh, diverse. And so I think the first thing that I'm trying to do with my PhD is to bypass this problem. So I'm trying to collect uh, mortality data from uh, civil registers that exist in these countries and try to produce accurate estimates. And so the very first thing that has to be done is understand how these mortality trends or life expectancy has changed over time. And so then once we see that we see those difference be differences between the countries, we will be able to understand to, and to map them out how they have changed uh, in, in time, but also in space. Because when we are thinking about these countries in the Balkans, we have um, different countries, but then the countries have also subnational regions. So when, when we're discussing the countries, depending on what level you take, you can see a gradient. So you can see within country gradients and you can see between country gradients. And as many know, the, the countries, for example, in Western Balkans, they also sort of show this socioeconomic gradient where we have some countries that are like Slovenia that are in the European Union. They perform on all the indices that measure socioeconomic and political development. They're performing significantly better than the other countries. And so once uh, it is understood, this health and mortality are understood, then it comes the question, is it possible to map the inequalities? So I would hope yes, and that is what I'm trying to do. In terms of how this is best done, as I said, the first, uh, the first aspect of producing these uh, measurements is to use standard demographic um, techniques, and those are called life tables. Um, I don't know if you have come across them, but to briefly describe them for the listeners, um, basically, you observe the mortality trends in a population, and then you, you apply those to a hypothetical cohort. And you say, if, if there are, let's say, 100,000 people, this is how the death will be distributed between the different age groups and between the different sexes. And so after that is done, then you can think about how you can calculate inequalities. I'm really interested in trying to quantify the lifespan inequalities. 
because we know that, for example, Slovenia has a higher life expectancy than other countries in the Balkans. And Slovenia is one of the leaders in Europe in terms of life expectancy, while the rest of the countries are either around the average of the WHO European region or below. And so I will, I will want to quantify that using a lifespan inequality techniques. And then the last question that you have mentioned is the, the conflict and the wars. And is there a specific country in the region that maybe suffered more than the others? I think the conflict and war are really interesting because we're not talking only about the period of the war where there was a lot of destruction, a lot of casualties, a lot of death. And we know that the Balkan wars were one of the deadliest wars and the, the toll was really high. But also we're talking about the mental health implication later on, the destruction of social networks, the losing of families, uh, and the impact that might have on the progress of the people even after the war. We see in many studies that people still suffer from the war in terms of mental health and how that affects their lives. So I think the impact of the war is longer than we think. It's not just the war, but it's also years after the war. And I think after I finished my, my PhD, I will be able to answer with accuracy what specific country in the region, in what periods have suffered the most and how they have improved and so on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. It's not, a, it's not an easy question. And to be quite fair on you, this whole question is quite in-depth and uh, quite complex. And I'm actually glad that uh, you are engaging at such a high level already with this concept. It's very important and it does show really good traits of a, of a proper researcher. But, but yeah, I have to agree with you, you know, war leaves so many uh, spillover effects. It generates so much pain and uh, agony even after it's over. Uh, not just on, uh, on uh, physical health, but uh, uh, mental health as you've rightly mentioned. Exactly. Let's look at um, another term that I'm interested in. So because your PhD is about demography and population studies, I want to ask what exactly is a study of demography and what are the main things we explore within it? And uh, how can demography as a concept be studied outside population studies, for example, elsewhere? in uh, the natural sciences, because you're looking at this from a very hybrid geared a bit towards the social sciences. Yeah, so demography is the study of population structure and change. Um, and it looks at the characteristics of a population. So for example, age and sex, and tries to understand the births, the deaths, the migration. And basically, what are some patterns and trends, trends in fertility, mortality, migration, and to understand why they're happening, what are their determinants, and what are their consequences. It also looks at the relationships between people, between households, between families. It looks at um, marriages. It looks at, uh, it looks at families as a whole. And it, it answers some really interesting questions, even things that we cannot we, we don't usually think that they can be answered, such as, for example, why do men tend to die earlier than women? Why do some people migrate and not others? And so in terms of methodologies that are used in the demography, I think demography takes a broader view 
and it uses many different information sources such as surveys, longitudinal data, it uses civil registers, censuses, and it takes that data that we have for the populations and it analyzes it, applies different, different assumptions, different models to, to understand better that relationship that exists. Uh, in terms of what it can be applied on, it's really interesting. There are many different groups that are applying it on non-human primate, primates as well. And so, for example, there are some groups that look at uh, how social rank and social interaction can affect aging and mortality in non-human primate populations and try to see if those findings somehow relate to human populations and so on. I'm, I'm very much focused in my research on the human population side, but many of the techniques that are used in demography come from different, uh, from different fields as well and can be applied in many different fields. It's quite amazing to see how these work and how this can be applied in such a fashion on um, different populations. Right. So because because of this interdisciplinary background that you have, you've uh, you've definitely come across several key terms and methodologies and and you've been trained in on, in these and you overall have a more holistic approach, yeah. I would argue, perhaps to to discuss uh, issues pertaining to global health. So because of this how do you understand the term global health security in simpler in simple terms? Really interesting question. Um, so global health security is centered on the prevention, detection, and responding to public health threats. The idea is that part uh, particularly people will be protected and societies will be protected from infectious diseases and threats. And this, this is sort of underpinned by the international health regulations that exist and that many countries are signatories to it. It is coordinated by the World Health Organization. And I think with COVID, it gained quite attraction. And we saw that the International Health Regulation Committee has met in January 2020 and declared uh, COVID a public health emergency of international concerns. So this is a very interesting way of framing an issue because clearly when you frame something to be a threat or a security issue, then it rises high up on the global agenda. It attracts a lot of funding. It attracts a lot of political will from leaders around the world and policymakers to focus and address this issue. But however, this securitization of an issue through a act of speech, basically, where we frame an issue as, as a global health uh, security threat is useful, but it has to be used with other frames as well. And so I'll, I'll give some brief examples of what I mean when I say different frames. So framing really refers just to how we, we say what is the problem. And to create a good policy, it's really crucial to understand what is the problem and how we will solve this problem. And so, for example, if we take, I'll, I'll take an, an unusual example, for example, the, the Zika example. Uh, when the Zika outbreak happened uh, in Brazil, it was around Olympic Games and it was again declared a public health emergency of international concerns. Um, and people really feared that Zika will spread because many people will come to Brazil during the Olympic Games. What Zika is briefly is a disease that is spread by mosquitoes and sometimes people can be asymptomatic, but it also causes uh, in pregnant women might cause a microcephaly in babies. And so it is particularly dangerous for, uh, for pregnant women. 
So at that time, one of the frameworks that was really applied was this security framework, securitization of the issue. And there was a lot of money mobilized. A lot of money went into finding vaccines, finding therapeutics, finding all, all these sort of medical side things. But this money that was mobilized then, it wasn't used to address other underlying issues that, that helped the spread of Zika. So, for example, such as development issues, development of infrastructure, because we know that if we eliminate mosquito breeding grounds that arise due to lack of infrastructure, then we will be um, able to, to reduce the burden, basically, of the disease. And so... Even simple things like that, uh, allocating, mobilizing the money, but then finding the right way where to apply it is really important. And that's why global health security should not be seen in isolation of other frameworks. And this applies to COVID as well. If you think, for example, um, some countries that ranked really high on the global health security index, such as the USA, has the highest death toll in the world. That cannot be explained only by understanding the health security side of things because they have ranked really high. That has to be seen in a more holistic way. If we're thinking about their health system and health provision, we know that their system is very fragmented. Many, many of the citizens are discouraged from uh, seeking medical help because they do not have insurance. Many of their chronic diseases are left untreated because, again, many people don't have medical insurance. And so we cannot see a global health security on its own. We need to see it in a more holistic way. So, for example, when, when we're thinking about the case of the USA, we can also think about universal health coverage. We can see countries now that are doing so, uh, that are doing well in handling the COVID pandemic because um, they, they have a universal health coverage system. They provide testing for free. They provide treatment for free for their citizens. Uh, but they still employ measures of prevention, such as physical distances, wearing masks, and so on. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. They can be together. And one last thing that I wanted to say, for example, in the case of COVID, we see, again, framed as a threat, we're talking about vaccines, we see all these governments that are investing a lot of money in procuring vaccines, which is great. But at the same time, there needs to be investments in the health system as well. Now we are one year into the pandemic, we need to think about investment in testing and tracing systems. It is unacceptable for countries to not have enough tests it is not acceptable for countries a year later to still be canceling crucial, basically, health services because they do not have enough beds uh, to, to treat the COVID patients. So it's really rather than just seeing it as a, a global health security issue and uh, trying to, to make these defensive mechanisms, think in the long term, how can we invest in the other root causes of the problems and through different frames, such as a development frame, investment, maybe feminist frames and so on to support the health system. Diana, this is this is incredible. Like it's uh, what you're looking at, this very holistic approach to global health security is just so intriguing. Uh, but also you've, you've mentioned something that I'm all also exploring in my own PhD. You've uh, you've referred to securitization, which is a very chief uh, theme that I explore in my own thesis. And specifically, you know, within global health security, I also view pandemics, I actually started doing this before, coincidentally, uh, the pandemic broke out. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I mean, I was looking at how pandemics can be understood as a, a hybrid threat to societies, to the state itself, to uh, 
blocks like the European Union to uh, international institutions and organizations simply because, as you've said, uh, it's unacceptable to have so many countries not prioritizing the health system, not prioritizing the vaccinations, not investing enough. And because of that, uh, we have not ever been ready for a pandemic for any pandemic of uh, any level. And that's why we see all these spillover effects because a hybrid threat, essentially what it does is it generates different spillover effects. It starts off, for example, like uh, COVID itself, it starts off as a public health uh, concern, obviously. And then you see all these other issues that you are also exploring. You see the uh, socioeconomic implications, you see the inequalities, you see other things like anxiety and even resilience in some cases. So it's quite important to be engaged with these uh, topics. It's absolutely important. Uh, but because I don't want to digress, uh, uh, this is going to take much longer than a simple podcast to go through all these. <laughs> I want to go back to looking at your profile. You've uh, also worked as a consultant at the World Health Organization in Geneva. And, you know, having interacted with both the policy side and the research side of things, what what sort of insights would you like to share regarding this pandemic we're dealing with? I mean, you, you've, you have already begun touching upon it that, you know, there's much more work that needs to be done that we're not really doing at a policy level yet. So how, what other insights are there? Yeah. So I think policy side and research side need to go hand in hand. And I'm a very big advocate of evidence-based policymaking and basically generating evidence. So a lot of my work, work there actually focused on finding ways to quantify barriers that exist or some challenges that might exist. And then that can inspire then policy leaders of how to address them. I think some of the, the key things are there is a lot of research that is generated in general in the world, in the academic sphere, but also by governments themselves. And it is really, really important for, uh, for the policymakers to review that research. Because the most important thing I think when creating a policy is understanding how the policy suggestions fit with your local context. When I talk lo local, I don't mean only your immediate community, but also the country can be seen as a local context or maybe the region that you are studying. Every region is different. Every region has different um, challenges and advantages. Every uh, region has many, many differences, basically. Thinking about how to create a policy that is suitable for that region is really important. Even beyond the pandemic, when we're talking about health, so for example, um, we, we might be thinking about creating a policy that we have seen in another region, but that cannot be even imagined in the context we are seeing. So for example, we need to be very mindful of the culture, we need to be very mindful of the religion of the people which we are addressing and that are the target audience of this policy. And we need to think, can they envision this policy? Can, can they see themselves as participants in this policy? And it, if we cannot, then that is not the right policy for, for, that, for that country or that region, for example. 
And so I think it's, it's really important when we are generating research to know the limitations of the research, to understand where is this research conducted, what is this research looking at, and if it's very different from our local context, then maybe we should think of, okay, how can we conduct a similar study in our country, or how can we assess the, limit, the challenges in our countries better, basically. And then once we have a very good identification of the problem that is evidence-based, then it's easy to develop a policy. Because the main problem in developing the policies is setting the agenda and identifying problems. Often, as we mentioned earlier in the global health security answer, with the framing of an issue, if you misframe an issue, you use the wrong frame, the solution will be wrong. And the solution might mitigate the problem or might prolong the problem or might reduce the problem, but it will not eliminate the problem. So it is very, very important to, to take research and to understand what the evidence is saying when creating policies. But the most important thing of, of it all is understanding the context where we are applying this research. It is really difficult to find one size fits all and we can see good practices, but it's important to understand what will work in our context. And for example, even personally, why I have chosen to, um, to investigate the Western Balkans in my uh, PhD is because I'm from that region. I know the local context. I understand why certain things are done the way they are, which might be unusual to other countries, but that is how it works in that context. So I think understanding the context is crucial in creating policy. Absolutely. Understanding the context, using more holistic approaches, getting the sciences to talk to each other, that's also very important. And yeah. Exactly. I want to ask a very final question. Now, we've uh, throughout this pandemic, mm-hmm. we've seen a very constant theme, which is uh, increased toxicity, fake news, distorted facts on social media, the news, and generally online, in uh, in blogs and elsewhere. And as this season of our podcast focuses on the narratives in international affairs, I want to ask, what sort of narrative can we use to best address this toxicity, the conspiracy theories online and offline, as well as any other justifiable anxiety, concerns, or fear in general, people may have when it comes to crisis. Because what I, what we've mentioned earlier is that when we don't have adequate knowledge and we sometimes apply such a wrong framework to the wrong context, we don't necessarily come up with the best solution or perhaps we don't really come up with any solution at all. And this sometimes leads to generating anxiety within society and populations. We, you know, we, we lead people on to an inevitable path where things might be even scarier. And at the same time, we accidentally generate these conspiracy theories. And it's not just us. I mean, what I'm saying us is not just policymakers or academics, but also, you know, people themselves, they do that as well. They, 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 when, when they, when someone doesn't have adequate knowledge, they go on and they create the most crazy stuff that you've heard of. So how, do we address this problem, do you think? As you as you said yourself, this is a very, very big problem. And I think rightly, as you mentioned, it's not only that people want to create something with fake news with malicious intent, but it's sometimes that people uh, want to do something good and think they have the understanding, but at the same time, it, it's not the right thing to do because they do not have the knowledge. 
I think this is a very loaded question in terms of uh, who, uh, who should be looking at to address this question. Should it be the policymaker? Should it be the academics? Should it be the media? Should it be us as individuals? And I think I want to focus my, uh, my answer to us as individuals because I think that will make the most impact for uh, the listeners as well. But it's something that I practice in my own life and I think it, it helps me a lot. So when I think of fake news in terms of health, I, I take two different two approaches. The first one is how to minimize their impact on me. And the other one is what can I do to prevent the spread of fake news? So how to minimize the impact on myself? Uh, the first thing is every time I see some news that I don't understand or something that sounds really crazy, even though I have studied health and researching health, worked in this field, I, there are many times you read things online and you just don't understand what they're saying because of the way they're made to sound to, to make a sensation out of an issue. And so what I do first is I try to find other more reliable information sources. I try to find peer-reviewed publications. I try to go on international organizations, websites such as the World Health Organization and to understand better what is their perspective on this. And is, these are like my more reliable sources. And then if, uh, then if I don't understand something else rather than just quoting it, I, I try to, to think, okay, why could have said, what, what, why would they say this? Um, and to try to understand how could this be a result of misinterpretation of some certain facts. Then the second thing that I do is really limiting my time online in terms of checking the news. And I think during the pandemic, we also how you can fall into a vicious cycle of constantly refreshing news and constantly getting new and new updates. So I have very much limited my time online in terms of when can I check the news and what are the information sources that I check. So that is how I protect myself from, from, from fake news. But then I also acknowledge my role in, in preventing the spread of fake news. And I think uh, this, is, this is a very important thing because sometimes unconsciously we can see something online and just tell it to the person next to us as, oh, I read this online, I'm not sure if it's true or not, and then you share it with someone, but the person thinks that is the truth. And then they go say it to another person and suddenly it goes into this whole cycle of spreading fake information. Um, so as I said, I don't share anything before fact-checking it. And I try to talk to the people around me when I see them posting stuff in social media that might be, um, that might be potentially dangerous in the terms of how things are phrased or how things are framed. And I, I tell them, look, check these sources. They will, they're more reliable. They will tell you better. And I really try to talk to them and understand why they think this news is right. And I really try to understand what is their perspective and try to tell them that they need to talk to someone who's an expert in the field. Um, and I think with COVID, many times we see now in the news, we see a lot of uh, misinformation on vaccines. We see a lot of conspiracy theories. We see a lot of misinformation on wearing masks. And I always tell, tell people, if you're uncertain, call your doctor. Call your medical provider, he will be able to tell you a more realistic view of what is happening. Also to understand, for example, many people rightfully, as you said, because of how this is something new that we don't know. And so evidence changes as we go. And sometimes something that we believe is true at the beginning might not be true now. And it causes these U-turns by government. And that causes people to be very anxious in, in a way that they're saying, well, maybe this is a conspiracy theory. 
But then it is all important for people to understand that this is a situation that is evolving. People are not really sure we are investigating the virus and we are always acting based on the best available evidence at the, at the moment. And I think they shouldn't be spending too much time just uh, trying to find the conspiracy theory, but to understand, okay, this will protect me. What can I do to protect myself? What is the government advice at the moment? What is the World Health Organization's advice at the moment? And I, I think they, if they have this um, anxiety or uncertainty, they should be checking the official press conferences. For example, they can check their governments, they can check the World Health Organization press conferences and understand from their perspective. I think they're quite accessible for the general public, even non-experts as well, because the language that they use is very applicable to the people. And so I think it's really important all of us to understand basically our role in stopping the fake news and spreading the fake news. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you've said, it's uh, it's an evolving, it's an ongoing crisis. Communication is very important throughout this period. And uh, the best we can do is to start as individuals, you know, to educate ourselves and to be more aware, and to look into these things ourselves and then start taking care of ourselves for the sake of our family and friends and to sit down and really reassess the situation around us and hopefully you know things will turn out for the best uh <laughs> so yeah uh diana it's been a fascinating conversation I, I i can't get enough of these conversations i really appreciate how holistic these approaches are and uh i really wanted to thank you for your time and i wish you all the best with your research it's a very important research field Thank you so much, Petros, for inviting me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for putting accent on this topic, which I think is so important. Um, so thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast.